I spent the last three years learning from some of the most ingenious mergers and acquisition specialists around. And now I've decided to take the leap into buying businesses. The real questions are how will I do it? How much of the behind the scenes can we really show? And how can business owners like you maximize their purchase price and build generational wealth? This show is going to give you the answers. Join me and follow along as I share mine and other stories as we buy, sell, or merge healthcare businesses and physical therapy practices. I'm Dave Kittle, and this is The Dave Kittle Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Dave Kittle here. I am the owner of Concierge Pain Relief Home Physical Therapy in New York City and the CEO of the Fieldmaker Group. We're currently speaking with practice owners about partnering or acquiring some or all their practice. And today we have Dawn Bloomer on the show. She is a very interesting guest, a veterinarian practice owner who has sold and exited her practice. We're going to hear about that and what she's doing now, pivoting into advisory. So then, because she has gone through the process, is now helping practice owners and business owners with the exit and sale process. Dawn, welcome on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's been great to connect. So tell the audience a little bit about yourself in terms of your background. We'll start with the veterinarian experience and being a practice owner and exiting. Sure. So um, I think like a lot of professionals, when I was about six years old, I had this dream that I wanted to be a veterinarian. And so for about oh, over 20 years, I was a veterinarian for racehorses, which is a really small niche, even for the veterinary world. I was fortunate enough to join a uh, group practice that was already well-established. I was an associate for several years before I bought in and I bought into the practice. There were four of us at the time I bought in just as I was having my first child. So it was a pretty exciting time for me, you know, new mom, new practice owner, and really my solution to helping the practice be sustainable and grow was just to put my head down and work a lot. And so along the way, Later, we started to realize uh, we had one partner that went out on disability. We had another partner who eventually decided that he wanted to retire. And at the end of the day, we had two partners remaining. And we realized we really didn't have much of an exit strategy. Fortunately, there was a group of other practices, other veterinary practices, some small, some equine and some large animal practices that had already grouped together. They'd already merged. And they asked us if we wanted to join their group. and so. You know, we were really excited. We thought this was great. And it was, it was a wonderful group of people. It allowed us to diversify our risk because there were different types of practices all over the country. There were a lot of really good things that came from that. And then as part of that group, I actually worked on the deal team with some super smart people and we worked really hard to acquire some more practice so we could continue to grow and really add value and make the practice more valuable over time, which we did. But along the way, it was really interesting because I learned a lot about the challenges of... I'd already learned the challenges of selling your practice in that first exit, if you will. And now I was learning all about the challenges of trying to buy practices. So we did that for a couple of years and then reached a point near the... you know As, as COVID was starting to we were sort of settling into COVID, if you will, where we were approached by a much larger corporate aggregator and it ended up that we were acquired by them. So a period of time after that, I decided that I was really excited about all of this practice 
management, practice consulting and preparing practices for sale and practice owners for exit. So that's sort of how I transitioned into that. Oh, along the way, I also got an MBA and had a second child. So there was like a lot of stuff happened in that period of time. I was busy. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Wow. So what approximately like how how much scale or how large was the practice when you had done the first deal, the first merger, it sounds like? So when we did the first deal, um, we were, you know, multi-million dollar practice. We had at that time, I think four veterinarians and then a bunch of support staff, about 10 support staff. We had a slightly different operation because unlike most medical practices, we didn't have a physical location other than a billing office. Everything we did was out in the field. So we had a lot of trucks. That's where most of our stuff was. And so we were in a good place when we moved in. We'd, I'd spent probably at that point several years really working hard on our systems and processes and making sure that we had a lot of efficiencies in place that we didn't have previously really worked on cleaning up our financials and making sure that everything was neat and tidy with the thought that, you know, at some point we were either going to want to have someone buy in or get bought out. The challenge we had as a lot of medical, I think practices have right now is that it's hard for, for people who come out of school with a lot of student debt to think about investing in a practice and so, you know, I think it's one of the reasons why the aggregators have been so successful at buying up practices is that it's hard to find uh, young people who can afford to buy in, even if they want to, or let alone buy out. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. In terms of, you know, I know you surely don't have to mention because to keep it confidential, the dollar amount of the deal, but if you're comfortable, how much was the... And you, we certainly can, you know, skip it. But what percentage of the cash flow close was it? Like a hundred percent? Was it like sixty percent? Um, Is that something you? Yeah, I think I think in that in that first exit, I think we did. I think we kept. I'm trying to remember. But I think in the end, we kept about forty percent equity, and it was sort of a blended transaction. It was sort of part mer- merger, part acquisition. It was a little bit complicated because of the model that they had, which was sort of a proprietary model that they had designed, and so. One of the things that that taught me about deals is that it's really hard as a practice owner, especially if you didn't have any business knowledge prior, you know, business training before formal business training to even sort of muddle through all of the intricacies of that kind of a deal. What we learned after we became part of the group was that what we thought we were hearing about how all the mechanics of the cash flow and all those things were going to work was not quite the same as the reality. And so one of the things that I did going forward as part of the deal team for the new group, or you know, the group we joined, was to make sure that when we were having conversations with practice owners, that I was sort of sitting off to the side and listening to what both sides were saying and making sure, because I knew what we meant, making sure that what we were saying, they were understanding. Because it's, you know, to your point, it's complicated and it really depends. Certainly, the structure of our deal was was unusual compared to a lot of sort of standard transactions. So I don't know if that quite answered your question, but so sixty percent, you guys were you and and your partners able to take off the table, and then forty percent was it rollover equity into like the parent company? Yes, got it. So, and I appreciate your you know your openness and transparency with that. And the reason why I love talking about that type of stuff is because then practice owners out there watching or listening, they can kind of hear or see or or understand that. Like all these deals are different and they can be creative. There's not like some corporates might have like a cookie cutter approach, like a, maybe an initial yep. 
an initial structure or maybe some corporates or PE firms, they might have like a take it or leave it type of an approach. But then there's other regional sure. buyers and, and smaller buyers that like they actually can be flexible if you, if the seller, the practice owner has some understanding and has some openness to be flexible in these creative deals so that the merger, the deal, it could be 100% cash to close. It could be you know, almost no cash to close. I mean, of course you want some cash to close, yeah. but it, I mean, that's the thing. It could really like span, span the gamut there, right? Absolutely. And I think that's a really good point because I think one of the challenges for a lot of practice owners is they really just don't even know what their options are. You know, they've heard about certain things, but you know, we had no idea what the offer would really be until we'd signed the NDA and, you know, we're really inside of it. And even at that point, like I said, there were some parts of it that got a little complicated at the end of the day and that we didn't, even though we thought we really understood, we didn't entirely understand until after the fact. Not that it was anything bad. It was just, it was not quite what we thought we understood. And so I think to your point, I mean, if I was, it's going to sound a little trite coming from me, but if I was doing it all over again, we I would have brought in an advisor sooner because honestly, I'm sure we thought we were saving money. And at the end of the day, we weren't saving money or stress or any of the things. We just made it harder on ourselves. And I think that's a challenge for a lot of professionals because we're smart people, right? And we're used to being the person in the room that has all the knowledge and has the answers. And so I think sometimes it's hard for us to I'm not saying that we intentionally do it. I'm not saying it's just ego getting in the way. But I just think that we legitimately think, well, you know, how hard can it be? You know, they can explain it to me. I can figure it out. And then we'll get the lawyer to look at the fine print and da, da, da. But really, it's a really specialized type of event. And it's unlike anything I had ever been through in, you know, in my life, for sure. I mean, I bought real estate. I, you know, done various things. But I bought into the practice. It wasn't the same thing. I think, I think. I underestimated how important really understanding it was. And I think an advisor could have been very helpful in that. Yeah. And we're on the buy side, but I always mention like practice owners on the show, listening, watching, I always suggest find a broker, find an advisor. I mean, there's been a bunch on the show. (laughs) Look at the old episodes here and go back and kind of like interview a bunch. You get interview and and see who makes the most sense for you and resonates with you. So in, in terms of the initial merger, were th- those were other comparable size practices like in your region? They were not like PE backed or or some other like national corporate? Oh, great question. No. So in that original group, they were all private practices that had had a, a group of them had originally merged. They were all over the country, all over the U.S. They were different practice types. So it was a very unique group because generally speaking, most aggregators at that point had been aggregating like practices. So small animal practices were being grouped together. Equine practices had started to be grouped together, but it wasn't very common. So this group was really special. It was some very forward thinking people who had had the, you know, sort of had the gumption, if you will, to say, well, we're going to do something completely different. And they didn't, you know, an excellent job of it. Got it. What else from that whole experience that you had with these different deals and experiences that you'd be able to share that maybe would help a practice owner watching or listening, something that like they might not come across or understand until they're kind of like in the thick of it. So I think obviously I we had our own struggles going through the process. And then where it really hit home for me that this was a common challenge was when we started trying to or working on acquiring practices for our group. And so when I flipped over to the buy side, 
And, you know, we were reaching out to practices that looked like they'd be a great fit or they were approaching us and we were like, great. And then you'd get to talking to them. And, and it's interesting. A lot of times we didn't even get to the financials because the financials at the end of the day weren't going to change the fact that the business really truly wasn't in a position to sell to an outsider. And that was heartbreaking for me because we would sit, you know, of course, at that time we were sort of in COVID, it was across Zoom and we'd be talking with these people and they'd be all excited to tell us about their great practice and how much money they make and yada, yada, yada. But at the end of the day, the practice owner or some other key person was at the center of their business and it was completely reliant on them, or at least the majority of it was reliant on them for its existence. And what was sad about it was that it was so clear to us that there was no deal to happen. And yet they really didn't understand. They're like, but don't you want to see our financials? I mean, we make a lot of money. But at the end of the day, if that one or two practice owners or three, they're all the people that are making all the money, unless they want to stay on for a really protracted period of time, it just, it wasn't doable. So to have to tell people who had worked their entire lives to build this business that they're so confident is worth all this money because it makes so much money. And then to tell them that really it, it didn't have any value to us as a buyer was hard. I mean, I can't imagine how hard it was for them, but it was hard for us. Those were hard conversations to have. And it really made me appreciate the fact that as professionals, we are taught a lot about the thing that we're trained in, right? We learn a lot. Like as a veterinarian, I was really good in medicine, but most of us don't have any formal business training. And I think that's true across professional services practices and firms. We just don't have a lot of formal business training. And so what seems like logic and what's gotten us by and what's maybe even made us a lot of money along the way doesn't mean that it provides value for us when we want to get out. Yeah, that's great. So on the banner here on your LinkedIn profile, it says whether you're planning to exit your practice in 12 months or 10 years, now is the time to start planning. So what would you say to a practice owner that maybe is either solo or has like one or two team members and maybe they have the aspirations in the next couple of years of exiting or they want to they want to have something that's sellable. And right now, whether they realize it or not, it, it might not be sellable or something that a regional or a national buyer would want. What would be, I mean, they obviously need to grow. They need to expand their team. Like there's, there's yeah. a whole host of things and it's, and it's not easy. And I think some practice owners that I've met and interacted with and spoken with over the years, I think there's like some ego component that they want to do it all. What are some tips or strategies, either short-term or long-term that you would maybe offer up to some of these practice owners? Yeah. So I think your point is, is really valid. I think the challenge for a lot of us when we're in that place is whether it's ego or not, it, it's it's our identity. Like our identity becomes wrapped up in the fact that we're the one the clients want to see. We are the one who built the thing. We are the one who has all the answers. We are arguably the most important, most responsible person in the room. And I think that's something that can be hard to give up. But at the end of the day, I think people that are in that position, you always have choices, right? So your choices are you could just keep doing what you're doing and do it until you're ready to walk away and then liquidate. My partners and I, there were times along the road when we thought that was what we would end up doing. If we hadn't joined with that group, who knows what we would have ended up doing. So that's an option. For some people, that's fine. You know, They just want to work until they're done. I think it's sad because I think if you've really built up a loyal clientele, I think that you're doing them a disservice and yourself by not trying to come up with other solutions. I think that there are a lot of solo practitioners out there who could, and I've seen it happen in a lot of different spaces where you can do your own sort of 
grouping of practices. We talked to a number of practices when we were looking to, you know, to join and said, listen, if you talk to so-and-so and so-and-so, they're all in your area. If you guys can get together and create some sort of a group practice, then you would be attractive to us. But, you know, we weren't in a place where we wanted to go buying up little things and trying to integrate them. The challenge, as you know, with having someone who is a solo practitioner is, you know, what I like to refer to as the fall down factor. So what happens if you fall down? If you fall down, who's going to do the thing if you're the one who's doing all of it? So I think there are options. I think that either you grow, you scale, you bring in someone underneath you and then someone else underneath you and you prepare to make less money in the short term for yourself, you know, as salary. But over the long term, you have a chance that you could be worth a lot more to someone who might be able to purchase you. So I think it's a matter of deciding what your goals are and then making a plan according to that. Got it. And so now you're helping practice owners and you created Productive Pressure. I'll put it in the show notes. You guys can check out ProductivePressure.com and reach out to Dawn and we'll get the contact information there. So now you're helping practices go through your experience. Like they're looking to exit and they could, you know, potentially reach out to you if they're looking to sell in the next year or the next five or 10 years. So what are the things that like common themes or patterns that you're seeing with practices right now? And as to preface this, like in the pre-interview, we talked about valuations and I said, you know, oh, you know, we put in offers, we've had, you know, we put in letters of intent. Hopefully in the next week or two, we're going to be putting another offer in practice in the area. And so, you know, the buyers are going to value it. We're going to go through financial modeling. We're going to do underwriting. We're going to use the debt service coverage ratios that a lot of the banks will use. And whether we use SBA financing or not, or our own capital or whatever, like there's pretty straightforward methods to put a value on a service-based business. It could be veterinary. It could be physical therapy. It doesn't matter. And so we'll come up with a number that we believe is fair and competitive and we'll get offers declined. And so... What are you seeing in terms of valuations and practices out there right now? So I think to your point, the challenge is right now, I think we went through a period of time, certainly in our industry, and I think in a lot of industries where there was almost like a buying frenzy and the multiples started to to climb. And some of them in our industry, like in the veterinary space where I was, they they got kind of crazy, frankly. And now leveraging, obviously borrowing money to buy businesses is obviously a lot more expensive than it was. And so it seems to have slowed down quite a bit. I think what I would say, you know, when I look at how I help people, really the reason why I talk about an exit plan is not because I'm not trying to attract people who want to leave their business tomorrow, because frankly, if they want to leave their business tomorrow, I probably can't help them very much unless they've done a really bang up job and they're really in good shape. What I want practice owners to start thinking about is those people who are in the center of their business and they are overwhelmed. And, and, you know, most of the people that I work with have partners and they're sort of at a certain size so that they can start thinking about what's my practice going to be worth. But regardless, I think what I would say is that you have to be realistic. And the only way you can be realistic is if you bring someone in or you find someone who can value your practice for you. I don't care if you want to leave in a year or 10 years, get a valuation on your practice now so that you know what it's worth for a couple of reasons. Number one, a lot of people have their business value on their personal balance sheet. So when they're talking with their financial planner about their plans for retirement, 
they're incorporating what they think the value is of their business. And yet they really have no idea. So somebody in there is coming up with some value. They're plucking it on their personal balance sheet and they're building their retirement plan around a number that is fuzzy math. So my process, I like to start with understanding what what the owner's goals are, where they want to go. And then very soon thereafter, we need to look at what is the business really worth? What levers can we pull to not only make it more valuable in the future, but to make it really all the things that you do to prepare a business for an exit is going to make your business better for you as an owner, right? Like I like to think of it that the business that someone wants to buy is probably a business that you might want to keep. Whereas the buyer doesn't want to buy something that you're trying to get the heck out of, right? So I think the problem with valuations in general is that I think they, the multiples and the, and the numbers got a little crazy for a while. I think there's been a correction in most places, in most areas. That may change because at some point, there's a lot of money sitting out there that's looking for a place to go. But right now, I think it's a great time for people to be looking at how can they get themselves ready when the time comes. And I'm not sure if that quite answered your question, but... No, d- yeah, definitely. I mean, with what you're doing for practices and owners out there, when you're saying getting a valuation on your practice, which I definitely believe is is something useful and helpful for them, and they get to hear it from someone who's on their side of the table. So it'd be you or another advisor. Right. Uh, with valuations, is it typically you're going to help them with that and do that in-house with them as part of like, you're offering in your fee? Are you talking about it like an external independent billing audit? What are some things that, or maybe there are options, maybe it depends on the, the practice yeah. owner and, and maybe they want a couple different sources, like valuations from a couple of different touch points. So like maybe your number, and then maybe they want an independent business valuation. I got to go pay some, another firm, a couple thousand bucks or whatever. And then yeah. they get a window of a dollar amount window, maybe like, what do you suggest or what do you think is best practice? Yeah, I think it depends. I think you're absolutely right. I think it depends. It depends on the client, depends on the on the owner. I think there are a lot of reasons, at least the first time around, for getting, you know, some different perspectives because as we all know, there are different ways to value practices. But I think the other piece that I spend a lot of time on is the intangibles because the intangible factors in a sale or in a business, you know, in, including the people, the culture, how ready is the business actually for you to not be in it? All those things factor into the value. And there are things that are not just financial numbers. So I spend a lot of time on that piece of it, in addition to then making sure that we've recasted EBITDA and that you know we're talking about numbers that actually reflect what the business is doing without all the things that need to be added back or pulled out. So there's a lot of time spent on really understanding what do your numbers really mean? Because I think that a lot of times we as small business owners, especially, we're spending a lot of time trying to make the business look like it doesn't make any money so that we pay less taxes, which is great and important. But when it comes to valuing the business, we want to make sure that we have a proper representation of what the business is really worth from a buyer's perspective. And so I am not a professional evaluator. I love getting people who are really specialized in their field to help support the process because I feel like sometimes it's worth spending a little extra money up front to get really good information. And at the end of the day, numbers matter. If they're not good numbers, then everything else that you base it on is 
you know, going to be weak. It's like I said about your personal wealth, right? And to me, that's a big one. When you're thinking about retirement, you really want to understand how much your business is really worth if you're going to factor that into your retirement plan. Got it. And how do you help practice owners? Like, let's say a practice owner, business owner reaches out to you to help or get your help with, with advice and advisory. And they reach out to you and they're like, hey, I have this one regional or one national buyer reaching out and they're interested uh, and they want me to you know, sign this NDA, right? What are some of your like options or ideas or, or your strategy with that? Like, do you, do you go and try to court other potential buyers? Do you try to get a bidding award? Do you use like an investment banking style of like having, you know, blind bids and, you know, top, you know, best, best offer with the best opportunity is probably what my client's going to go with. Like, what's your approach here? It depends. And I know that's not a great answer, but the reality is it depends. It depends on how quickly does the owner want or need to sell? What position is the business in? Is it really in a position where if they hung on a little longer, they could make it worth a lot more? Like, are there some easy levers that could be pulled? And if they delayed, if they want to go right away, well, then, you know, I don't think you can time and exit very effectively, right? I mean, really, at the end of the day, if you get a good offer, a good offer is a good offer. I have seen a lot of deals go south because people got greedy, honestly, at the end of the day. It's all well and good to want to get the most you can out of a deal. And that's really important. And at the same time, you have to balance that with not being ridiculous about it. And I've seen people where ego certainly got in the way. They're like, oh, well, if they're offering me this, I bet you they'll offer me that. Maybe, but maybe not. And so I think that it's important to do you know, your due diligence on that piece. But you know, if it's something where it looks like, yeah, this could really be worth more and you really should be considering more offers, it's not that hard to figure that out after sort of a very general cursory overview. It's usually fairly, I, I mean, you might go, oh my God, you're so lucky you got that. You should really you know, take that and run. Or it might be, well, you could do a lot better than that. And if you hung in a little bit longer, you could move the needle on a few things and actually make your practice worth a lot more. So I think it runs the gamut. To answer your question, I like to partner with other professionals who are like, to me, you want someone who's in the M&A field. You want a, an M&A lawyer. You know, if you're doing a big transaction, you really want an investment banker who can shop it around for you if, you know, if that's what you're interested in, if that's, if that's the way you want to go. So I look at myself as more of a generalist who can sort of quarterback the thing. I think it's really important to have someone who you know is just in your corner and is going to help translate among all the parties because every kind of everybody kind of talks their own language. And oftentimes we hear what we want to hear. It really helps. It's just like if you go to the doctor and you know, you've got something really wrong, it's always good to take someone with you so they can hear the information as it's really coming through because often we process it in the way we want to hear it. So that's how I look at that. Yeah, no, I and I know it all depends. I can't nail you down. You know, it just it is so fluid all of this. And um, I think it makes all the sense in the world, like to have a second set of eyes. And like your example of like family member goes to the physician and, you know, you have another family member there because then it's like a second set of ears and then they can, you know, say, oh, no, they actually said this or and you're the one that's, you know, there. And if you're ill or something, you're not going to be able to comprehend and understand everything potentially. Right. So this yeah. definitely all depends. I just think, yeah, as a quarterback, as a, as a, as an advisor, it just makes sense to have someone in your corner that is like been there, done that they've been through it. They can, you know, kind of coach and let that 
seller, that practice owner know like, yeah, like this could happen. This is normal. Yep. And it, it might be something that they take offense to like, like, it, like there's a lot of that. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Yeah. And actually to your point, I mean, a lot of what I do is coaching. A lot of it is coaching. It's really, you know, cause it is, I mean, it, some of it feels offensive. It feels personal in the moment and it's not, you know, it's just business, but to the person in the moment, it's not just business. It's like telling you your kid is ugly, you know? your business isn't worth that much. No, it's really not. So I think that it's really helpful if you have someone that you know is on your side, you know, is in your corner. It doesn't mean that everyone else who's part of your team is not in your corner, but I think it's helpful if you have that one person who is sort of the point person for everything, who can process all the information and make sure that you're getting the whole picture and you're understanding it. Because I tell you, when you don't do that, it was, it was a very stressful time for me very stressful trying to muddle through it on my own. I wouldn't do it again. And you did the initial merger on your own. Yes. Well, we had, correct? A, so we had a, we had an attorney who, you know, reviewed all the stuff, but that was it. We had an attorney, we had our CPA that had done all of our tax accounting forever. And we but, had but, your, attorney. but your, your attorney was not negotiating like the, the price or the terms or anything no. like that. No, we did all of that. It was really exciting. <laughs> So, so you, you know, it's so, twisted, exciting. So you were negotiating the the arrangement, the potential, the price, the terms, and then I'm a, so you took maybe those draft of the potential purchase agreement to your attorney and said, like, "Hey, can you just make sure I'm not going to get screwed here? Like, I'm not being yes. taken job. Is, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. That is correct, and and th- that is correct. And it was a really painful way to do it. I mean, I just didn't know what I didn't know. We didn't know what we didn't know. We we knew a number of the people that were involved. And so we were comfortable that they they were well-intended. But at the end of the day, even people who are well-intended are still going to look out for their own interests, right? And do what seems right for them. Business is still business. And so I think that, I mean, it was a great learning experience. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what I wouldn't do doing it again. But I do think that, I think it's one of those things, like I said, you know, we just thought that, you know, how hard can it be? You know, it's, it's just a, but the reality is, I mean, that's your nest egg for most people. That's your nest egg. It's worth investing to make sure that, that at the end of the day, you get what you want and, or at least you get close to what you want and you don't get into something where you really are stuck in a position that you're very unhappy about. Because there's yeah. nothing worse than that. And I think that's why a lot of people get buyer's remorse at the end too, right? They're like, oh my God, or what are you going to do after you sell your practice? So so you sell it and now you're either there working for someone else for a while. So what's next? So what are you going to do? So I like to talk through all that ahead of time so that that's not happening at the 11th hour after the fact, because that's a horrible feeling. Like, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah, you know? no, I mean, all of that. I still have my practice. All, all, yeah. all of that needs to be discussed up front because it's like some of these owners, depending on their their health, their age, their, you know, the next chapter of their life, some of these deals are, from what I've heard and other owners on the show here, some of them will stay with that buyer for 12 to 24 months. And some, like you said, like with the, with the example of the rollover equity, some are retaining, let's say 30 or 40%. And they're staying in, like their role might change. Maybe they treat less patients per week or per month or whatever. Um, But they're still owning and retaining a meaningful percentage of equity. And maybe there's some revenue share, profit share, whatever. So that's why the deals are so different. But all of that, and that's part of like, hopefully helpful from the show and, and other folks that we've spoken with, which is like, 
these things are all different. All these deals and all these arrangements could be different. And you as the practice owner, the business owner, you really need to think like, what is best for you? Like what's best for you, your family, your retirement plan, your exit strategy, your succession plan. Are you looking to get out right away? Like, are you looking to get out in a month or two? Like if that's the case and there's no one to replace you, your valuation is going to get hammered. And if you're looking to get out in two or three years, you have a lot more leverage and flexibility. And that de-risk situation for buyers like us, if you're going to stick around, we don't have to replace you. We don't have to spend time and money and effort in replacing you with some clinic director or some other individual. So those, that's why all the things you know like this are relevant and helpful to practice owners. And I just wanted to make sure that kind of like we've covered all the bases. Yeah. And I think there's another thing that we didn't really talk about too much. And you sort of touched on it there, like a little bit sort of like what we did. But you know, there are also possibilities for obviously internal sales, if you can bring people up from a you. There are also sometimes instances where you can do like a little bite of the apple at a time. So where you sell part of part of your equity, but not all of it. And whether it's to an, you know, an aggregator or uh, or someone within your business and you do a little bit at a time um, and then save the bigger exit for the end. But to your point, my concern in all of this, right, is because of my personal experience is that I want to make sure that business owners go into this really, really understanding what their options are and what they want. Because sometimes what they really want isn't in alignment with what they're planning. And I feel like that's when the most regret happens. So I really want to be sure that people are making decisions that are in alignment with what they really want for, to your point, for their family, for themselves, for their employees. To some people, like legacy is very important and you know what they leave for their employees because some of them have been doing it for a long time and their employees are like family. So I think that those are all pieces of the puzzle that to me are very important to address early on before you start deciding which type of deal are you looking for or which type of strategy or, you know is most attractive to you because those will start to form it'll narrow down some of your options depending on what you really want yeah well said in terms of any practice owner watching or listening do you or would you can you help any practice owner in any state like do you have maybe like a certain size or scale or a type of practice owner or location that would like qualify or disqualify them from, you know, potentially working with you? Not really. I would say that there's not a lot that I can do to help solo practitioners, frankly, because most of them haven't reached a scale where they have as many options. And I'm not working on any deals right now where I'm trying to lump different practices together. I don't know whether I would do that at some point in the future, but I'm not looking at that right now. I tend to work with practices that are, you know, usually have at least a couple million in revenue um, and like sort of like two to a hundred. There's a wide range because really a lot of the things that we're talking about apply to almost any size business. It's just the amount of effort that it takes to make change that changes, if you will. But generally, it doesn't matter where. Love to travel. So, and now we do pretty much everything over Zoom. So, I'm pretty much working with any type of professional service provider. I have other businesses that I work with, you know, other business types that I work with. But my passion is in helping practice owners because I just know what they've been through. And so that's what I get really excited about is, is basically making them realize that they can have a business and have their life. <laughs> and at the end of the day, they can have something that actually has value that can help support them as they want to move into whatever their next chapter is. 
That's great. What's a good place, Don, for the audience to reach out to you, whether it's ProductivePressure.com, email address, LinkedIn. What's a good place for the audience to reach out to you if they want to learn more? The website's great, but they can also get me LinkedIn. Is I'm, I'm on LinkedIn all the time. So feel free to send me a message on LinkedIn. I think all my contact information is on there as well. But if you want to learn more about my thoughts on things, the website's a great resource. I have some blog articles and some other information on there. There's some downloadables. So, Excellent. Well, I appreciate your time. This was a great discussion. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. It was a Absolutely. pleasure. Anyone watching, listening, find this valuable, insightful, or helpful, go ahead and subscribe to The Dave Kittle Show on iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify. We'll catch you next time here on the show. Thank you. Hey, it's Dave Kittle. Are you a healthcare business owner or physical therapy practice owner who is looking to figure out your succession plan or exit strategy? We might be able to help. And in fact, we may be interested in acquiring your practice. If you're interested, you can reach out to me. Shoot me an email at dave at conciergepainrelief.com. That's D-A-V-E at C-O-N-C-I-E-R-G-E, painrelief.com. Or you can call me at any time, 646-781-8884.